I have been greatly encouraged in our study in the Gospel of John and continually am reminded as I think about it more and more, just the view of Christ that John gives to us. I think if you walk away from this uh, this book and this past year and however long we've been in this study and you miss Christ and you miss the whole purpose of this, uh, John giving this to us. And it is a, a beautiful continual reminder for us week after week to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his words to us because they're not just to these uh, disciples, but they are words to us. I want to begin our uh, reading. You can follow along as I read just from 31 to 35 uh, in our time this morning as we consider a new commandment uh, that Jesus gives his disciples. And by default, he is giving giving it to us as well. Verse 31 says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We could put it this way. Love is the fragrance of Christ in the world. It is the essential quality of the church, the evidence of the knowledge and communion with God. Uh, So um, high in the list of Paul's idea uh, is love, at least that Christian virtue, that he gives three cardinal virtues in Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, of which he says the greatest is what? It is love. And of course, it is in that familiar chapter uh, of love, right in the middle of spiritual gifts, reminding us that if you want to be helpful, If you want to be useful in the kingdom of God, uh, then you will be so through love, and without it, you will be of no use. In fact, uh, that is remarkable, isn't it, when you speak about spiritual gifts and giftedness that we possess, and then 14, how we work with one another in the church in the middle of it. He says, here's the key to it all, and that is love. Love never fails. It is significant in the sense of what we see in the book of Revelation chapter number two and that embattled church of Ephesus as they face heresies and everything on every side it seems. You might recall that they stood in peril of being removed and shut down by Christ himself, the Lord of the church. And it wasn't because the church of Ephesus was leaning into heresy or they has promoted some kind of gross immorality. It wasn't because the church had had leaned too much into cultural appeal or paganism or something else. In fact, Christ's rebuke of the church and their very presence was in peril because they had lost their first love. Was it love for God or love for one another, we ask? Well, uh, there's a vagueness in that because I think God has wrapped up the love for him and the love for others so much, joined them together so much that it is impossible to separate them. That's what we read in First John, isn't it? 
And of course, there have been countless of examples of love here at our church, historically and present, uh, that we have seen, we've been blessed by, and this is what's on Jesus' mind as he goes to the cross, this command that he gives to them as he prepares them for his departure. I want to first set a little bit of the context here as we work through this, and hopefully that will help you, and we'll begin Really, if you take notes with a difficult message or difficult news, it's joyful but difficult. And then we'll get into this command in verse number 34. First of all, Judas has just left the room. Uh, You see that in verse number 31, uh, Judas had gone out and and Judas, when with his presence, you gotta you gotta remember, he said earlier, those were last week, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Uh, the word uh, conveys a deep agitation that Jesus experienced with Judas in the room. And Satan was present in the room as all that was going on. And, and so it's almost as if Ju- uh, Jesus, in, in sending him on his way, he clears the room so he could get down to business with his disciples and talk to them. And I think we personally know that experience a little bit. Not like that, of course. I get it. you know. But you know when somebody leaves the room and you're like, ah, that's nice. <laughs> Right? Have you thought that? Maybe some of you, when you get your kids to bed, and you're like, oh, that's nice. You know, the stress is gone, and you're too tired to worry about anything at that point. It's kind of like that. The temperature has changed in the room, if I could put it that way. Judas has left. Jesus is preparing his disciples. And so the, the kind of the, the heading of this is, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going away. And, and so he goes through a series of, of statements because he's physically leaving them. He's going to the cross, but he's also going to glory. Uh, and so chapter number 13 and 14 really really are interwoven in a series of questions and answers with four of his disciples. First Peter, uh, verse 36 through 38. And then you'll have Thomas, verse number 5. And then you'll have uh, Philip, and then you'll have Judas. And so the first part of the, uh, all the way to the end of chapter number 14 is really a, a series of questions based upon Jesus leaving. Which brings up the conversation in verse 31 and 32, the difficulty which Jesus sets before them. Notice that with me. He says, verse 31, we have, Judas has gone out. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God has glorified him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now I know when you read that on face value, you're like, what in the world? All I know is glory. And we could just say glory and kind of move on to the next point. What's going on in this point? Jesus is making it very clear for his disciples what is about to take place is not to diminish who Jesus is, but it will, it will bring greater glory to who Jesus is in front of them and in front of us. Uh, and it's a good reminder to us as we think about uh, going forward, we think about the cross and all that Jesus will face, that there is a glory involved in all of that. And so we think glory is the resurrection, Easter Sunday morning, but what we see is you can't have the significance of Easter without the cross. And so Jesus, when he says now, he's not speaking about that future glory in heaven, uh, that moment that we see in the book of Revelation. He says this moment that he's entered into, which will be his death and crucifixion on the cross, and will be physically the world is turned into darkness for the space of three hours, will be a testimony, will be a a vehicle to glorify God in a way in which it has never been seen before. There's a glory 
that he will experience. And glory is something we search for. We want to be known by something, receive that kind of praise of accomplishment. Human speaking, now I know you're saying to me, I don't want, I don't want glory. If I could just hide in a crowd for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. Well, maybe you, but the rest of the people in the world would they want that kind. That's why you do stuff that has a recognition or a prize or achievement at the end of it. You want to be known. In the biblical language or in the biblical idea of glory, it is to shed light on someone. It is to make much of someone's achievements or accomplishment in the sense of the Bible language. It is an act or a, a thing which God has done to reveal himself to us. To turn the light on in our mind and our understanding so we could see the bigness and the magnitude and the worthiness of who God is. Get a, a view of him. The Bible says the creation itself testifies to the glory of God. God is known. And what we want to see here is Jesus is saying at this moment, now when the Son of Man is glorified, God will be known in it. He will be glorified in the Son. What I want to say is it is at the cross, it is at the death of Christ that this glory of God is clearly and beautifully displayed for us. You see the severity of God, his glaring holiness, his majesty and his righteousness on display at Calvary, but you also see his pity and mercy and grace and love you see them come together and kiss at calvary through the person of jesus christ and jesus himself as he says verse number 32 because he is going to be glorified god is glorified in him god will glorify the son that's kind of what he's saying here verse number 32 to remind us that in heaven jesus will not be glorified despite the cross but because of the cross You think about the revelation, every time Christ is referred to, it's in association with his death, isn't it? You remember he's saying in chapter number one, I am he who was dead and am alive forevermore. When John, seeing the worthy one to take the scroll, looks to see a lion, and what does he find? He sees a sacrificial lamb. Over and over we are reminded this this glorifying Christ and his deeds on the cross. Um. Revelation 5, 8, we will be praising him because we were slain, uh, because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. Well, this was something that the disciples wanted. Much of Jesus glorified God on earth, but what they didn't understand, that, that this glory would take Jesus' presence from them. That he would no longer physically be with them. Verse number 33, little children... Isn't that an endearing term? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, he's going to the cross, and they cannot follow him there, but I think more is being said to this, that he is going back to the Father. That's the whole purpose of chapter number 14. No longer will they be able to reach over with their elbow and poke Jesus in the ribs and ask him a question. And all of this three and a half years, their whole ministry and their whole life was wrapped around seeing and touching and beholding and being in the immediate presence physically of Jesus. And he's saying, it's not going to be like that. I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Father. 
And it is uh, just briefly the, the message he says in verse number 33. There's a difference here between the disciples and what he says to the Jews. And he mentions that in chapter 7. And you can look that up. Uh, unlike the Jews, 7 verse 33 and 34 and chapter 8 verse 21. He tells the Jews that you're going to seek me and you're not going to be able to find me. I'm going and, and you won't be able to find me. And they're like, what are you going to do? Is he going to commit suicide? Is he going to go preach to the Gentiles? They don't know what he's talking about. Of course they don't. But um, so he tells the Jews, you're going to look for me, but I will no longer be with you. In fact, in chapter number eight, it's a statement of judgment because he says, I am leaving and you will die in your sins. There's a permanent removal of the presence of Jesus from the Jews and their rejection of him. And he's not telling the disciples the same thing. It's important. They will look for him, but they won't be able to find him, not physically. And it's similar to the disciples. But notice down in verse number 36, look at the, look at the statement Jesus makes to, to his disciples. Of course, we'll look at this more in detail. But he says, you cannot follow me, what? Now. I like that. Because the separation Jesus has in mind isn't eternal. It isn't a forever separation. What Jesus is doing is on purpose. They will be united. But now, now at this moment, you will not be able to find me. Peter has a hard time with that, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, this sets for us the significance of what follows. Because Jesus isn't relinquishing his lordship. He isn't stopping what he's aiming to do in the world. In fact, he's going to secure it and enable it through the cross and through his ascension. And so he's telling his disciples, he's telling his followers, this is, I'm going away. You're going, to be, you're going to be left here without my physical presence. And this is what I want you to do. What does he say first? How will he tell them to occupy themselves and be busy until they come? Now, you could go to the Great Commission. You could go to that. That's later on, right? What does he tell them in this moment? What's the first command that he gives his disciples? Now, if it was you and I, what would you tell your disciples? Um, I don't think love would be the first thing to come out of your mouth. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're not like that. And, but at least in my own mind, it wouldn't be the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Notice his first command to them, his order for them to follow as he leaves. And which would be the first command to us in verse number 34. A new commandment I give to you. I'm leaving you. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. Now, it would be wrong to think that the principle of love was not found in the Old Testament. I think... Many of you are familiar with that. In fact, the summary of the Old Testament law and the prophets, according to Jesus and Matthew, is seen in those two commands. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right? So love God. It comes out of Deuteronomy. Uh, and then the other one is like this, or like and under that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. That's what we were looking at the other day. Right, David? Uh, so you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Moses, way before Jesus. This was in the Old Testament. And so uh, he's not saying that. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans 13 that the whole fulfillment of the law is wrapped up in what? Love. Oh, no one, nothing except love. And so you see this kind of reminder over and over as we sum up the idea of love. What does he mean, a new commandment I give unto you? 
But one theologian said it this way, new was in the sense of putting it before his disciples as if it was the first time they heard it. In another way, I want to say this in such a novel way to where you know this is important, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, It's hard to um, fully kind of get along with that. In fact, the, the more people you read, the more answers you get to why did Jesus say, here's a new commandment for you. Now let me offer you what I think are, are three aspects to this that may help us understand a new commandment and, and um, maybe clear it up for you. The first is, it's new by way of experience. Notice with me in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Now, that's pretty understandable. It's pretty clear that you love one another just as I have loved you. There's much going on in that statement, but there's something that the disciples had experienced. And so it's easy to have love in some kind of abstract term. And we speak in generalities. I know oftentimes, as a, as a teacher, as a preacher, you kind of often, too much in generalities. We love that the verse John 3.16, God so loved the world. And, and, but what does it mean? How, how do we know that love? How do we... How do we understand what it means? Well, it's a love that is meant to be experienced. And the truth is we can't fully comprehend it without without fully having experienced it. That might make some of us nervous when we think about experience or experiential living, but that's that's what I think is going on. They had experienced the love of God. In fact, in 1 John, as he's, uh, with beginning of this, he reminds us that Jesus loved his own. He loved them to the end in, in chapter number 13. But first John tells us this, doesn't he? John tells us later on that the privilege of Jesus going to the cross in his glory and every grace which comes from that is rooted and flows from the fountain of God's love flows from the fountain of God's love for us. Notice verse John 4, 10 and 19. I'll read it for you. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. We love because he first loved us. Isn't that remarkable? We might hear the commandment to love God and love our neighbor, and we hear that often. We know that. Most of us know that in some way, but we are without the power to do so, rightly without the experience of God's love in our own life. You don't love God in the sense of how God is to be loved, or at least how the Bible is saying holy, in, in, your, in your flesh. It's not something that is natural to us. In fact, as we stand outside of Christ, the Bible says we're at enmity with God in some fashion or another. We're at odds with him. We're at war with him. And that love of God, which we see commanded for us and and given to us in the New Testament, displayed in others, it, it is birthed out of receiving and having experienced first his love for us. Not the other way around. We don't make ourselves love him so that he might love us. The fact that we love him is the fact that we have come to see something of his love for us. Does that make sense? I think this is very crucial. In fact, we're told that the very motivation of God sending his son into the world was his love for us. 
And we need to experience that love applied, personally, felt, as the grace of God and his goodness redeems us, saves us, pulls us out, washes us, sanctifies us. And I just want to ask you the question, have you tasted the love of God? Have you experienced it in your own life? Has it come more than just a statement we make on a, on a card or on a, uh, on a back of something or, or on a picture? Has it been something out of the abstract and, and brought into you personally? Is it a personal experience in your own life? Have you come to know the love of Christ? This is something that the disciples had experienced. They've tasted it. They felt the smile of God through Christ on their lives. And you and I can have that same experience, can't we? As we see his redeeming, cleansing work and saving us. Have you experienced the love of God and his comfort through the spirit of God in you, strengthening you, forgiving you, accepting you? Have you, have you come to experience something of the love of God? There's this newness by the very experience which we have it reminds me of that uh, old song that says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast and unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of his love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Have you come to know something of the love of Christ? How do you experience his love? Well, by faith, by receiving the gospel, by the Spirit's work in your own life. And isn't that a comfort to you, Christian? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know he still loves you after all these years and you're not sweeter than what you are, right? Can we, can we just be a little honest here? And I even said that very nicely, didn't I? Because you look to the cross, you see Christ. The greatest declaration, display of God's love, not in general, but to be experienced by you through faith and turning from your sins and turning to Christ. Look to the cross. Secondly, it's new by way of example. We should not get those backed up or backwards. Uh, what I mean by that is we don't look at Jesus by example if we, and say that's what we want to do if we've never experienced the love of Jesus applied to our life. Uh, in fact, we can't. We will falter. We will fail. We'll falter and fail anyway in many cases. But, but we will never get it right. Christ is not first an example. He is first a Savior. And then... And saving us, redeeming us, applying his righteousness to us, giving us his spirit, he then becomes the pattern, the goal, the aim of our life. As in a, we are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. And he says that, doesn't he? Notice again what he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. He's pointing back to his washing the disciples' feet. And he washes their feet. He explains what he's going to do. He's cleansing them. And, and they, they need a cleansing work. On, and he's going to do that. And, and he'll take care of that. And then he says, what you've seen me do, do to one another. You're not greater than me. No, no uh, you call me teacher and Lord. Verse 13, you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should also do as I've done to you. What is the standard for love? 
in some ways we can say the standard is the, the, the way we love ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here, doesn't he raise it up a little bit? Husbands, does he tell you to love your wives as you love yourself? Maybe it's implied there. No one ever hated himself. But doesn't he say something else? As Christ loved the church. And isn't even here he stretches us and causes us to reach more to a no, more nobler aim and a more nobler goal. Christ is our example. He is the pattern. And he tells us as he has loved them. How does Christ love them? Well, well, he keeps them. He loves them sacrificially. He seeks their own well-being. He humbles himself. He meets their practical needs. Do you know the Bible says he listens to us? Even now, he listens to us. Jesus loved them. He loves them. He loves us. He is our example. Now, let me just say this. And I know I need to say that because sometimes we'll walk away and be like, well, I've got to be a savior today. All right. So if you walk away and say that, you got it all wrong. Because you can't. Can we agree with that? <laughs> One amen. <laughs> the rest of y'all, when we pray, you can come forward. You're not going to love like Jesus fully. But you can love others. That's what he's saying here. You can forgive people who've wronged us. We can give to particular needs. We can listen to someone. We can offer encouragement. We can. There are things we can do. And that's what he's telling them. Look around at what I'm creating. A community with all of its diversity. With all of its problems. With all of its bumps and bruises. And he says love one another. And set Christ before you as an example. Not only as you experience his love. But an example and how to love. The third thing I would say. It is new by way of empowerment. New by way of empowerment. Now, we read, let us love one another in 1 John, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And by this, not only is God the pattern for our love for others, but he is also the source. In our flesh, we're selfish. In our flesh, in our fleshly uh, nature, we are we are particular. We're prejudiced. We have all these things going on in our life, and and it is the love of God that's spread abroad in our hearts. That spreads the love of God in our hearts. That is the source by which we love one another. In fact, he says later on in John fifteen, he says, "Abide in me, and and that is how you'll be fruitful. Without me, you can do nothing, including loving one another." In fact, if fruit of the spirit the chief and first characteristic is what love right love a solar panel does not create its own energy but takes the energy from the sunlight and produces an electrical current that is then converted to usable energy for a house that's about as much as i know about all of that But isn't it something like that with God and us? God at work in us is also his work through us. As we receive from him, as we we grow in him, and 
we grow in the love of God and fellowship with God and thankfulness for the redemption of God. We also, or like I said another way, as we walk in the light of the sun and receive the benefits of that light, that work is converted to love and generosity and care and service towards one another. So it is new by way of empowerment, it is new by way of example, and it's new by way of experience. Let me say something about verse 35 before we close. He says not only is this the command, a new command that he gives to them, but this is the mark by which everyone will know you belong to me. Verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A testimony of belonging to Christ, following Christ, walking in fellowship with Christ is seen in this simple expression of love one another. Isn't that remarkable? You and I might say, well, the the reality of us knowing God and, and, and in right standing with God is seen in what we're dogmatic about what the church should be known for, what we're about dogmatically, what hill we're going to die on and what what hill we'll fight for. We didn't say that here. We might say um, the way that we're known to be a Christian in the world is is not just what we're dogmatic about or what we'll fight for. It is about the things we confess concerning the world and humanity, our oddity, if you will. Christians are odd. If you believe the Bible, you're an odd person, right? I don't know if you need to hear that today, but you're in good company because we're all a little odd if you believe the Bible concerning the world's standards. So Christians are known for, for being weird. But he doesn't say that either, does he? Now, by, by, by saying that, don't take away from this. Well, we're, we're not supposed to be odd and weird, and, and we're not supposed to be dogmatic. We're not supposed to fight for things. I think you are. In fact, love for God and love for people compels us to make sure whatever it is we fight for and whatever we're dogmatic about is according to God's word and according uh, to his will, right? What we confess is true and right. But Jesus says here, what will stand out and mark you off as belonging to me in this world is radical love you show for one another. In the early church, it was the fact that Jews and Gentiles are sitting down sharing a meal. That's crazy. It's the fact of people who have nothing other in common except for the saving grace of God uh, and uh, a home in heaven uh, and forgiveness of sin are, are coming together, being united, fellowshipping with one another. It's the fact that, that as the world looks on and see you singing together, your hearts are united, not because we all agree on the same thing, not because we all like little robots and not because we don't rub each other the wrong way do we do that we have some interaction here because we do i rub you the wrong way you probably rub me the wrong way you rub one another the wrong way our agreement and the glory of of christ and his presence in the world is not shown by the fact we know how to annoy each other it's shown by the fact we know how to forgive and love one another and care for one another Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? They will know you because of the love you have for one another. There's a a story of a Roman Caesar who was trying to uh, 
revive the Roman paganism of his day. Uh, it was just before Constantine and Christianity was legalized in, in Rome, and he was trying to tell his false priests, whatever you call those people that, that were into that sort of thing, he was trying to tell them, do what the Christians are doing. That's how we'll attract people to paganism. Because they're loving their own poor and sick, and they're loving ours too. He said, and, and, and so you, you guys just need to go out and do what they're doing. Because it was a testimony to the grace of God in the gospel. And, and even that uh, pagan Caesar, I can get you his name later, but that pagan Caesar could not deny. It should be evident in any local church, shouldn't it? That they have come to know something about the love of God and the way they love one another. In fact, John says it's... it's it's a declaration, a testimony that you've understood the gospel and that you've been impacted by it. It is through practically loving one another. And I want to just say how, how encouraged I am and how often I've seen manifested in our church the love that we've had for our missionaries and the ways in which you've cared for and prayed for them and rejoiced and getting to see them and spend time with them and hear from them. And even our residents that come to the ministry center, that can't reciprocate that love. Maybe don't even want to reciprocate that love and don't care anything about receiving that love. In some ways, it happens that way. And yet, over and over, seeing the love of God uh, on display in your lives and in care for one another. But as a church, we're reminded that we, we not only look at what has what we have done but it is a it is the marching orders for what we're to continue to do love one another never perfectly but always reaching forward now you might be here and wonder in what ways can i love others more maybe you're not but if you are let me offer a few thoughts that come to mind to me as i was thinking about that in my own life one if you're going to love others you need to grow in christ you need to absorb that sunlight of knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for you. If you're going to have the energy to, to serve and benefit others, grow in Christ. You can serve others without, without waiting till you get to some level, but continue to grow. To continue to, to experience the love of God and put him before you as a standard as you read your Bible and how he lived and how he, he cared for others, how he spoke and and how he carried himself. Know who Jesus is. Know what he's done for you. Grow in Christ. The second thing I would say to those who are wondering how they can love others more, pray for insight, both to into God's word, pray for insight in God's word, the world, not just the world in general, but the people around you. Pray that God would help you see people for who they are. <laughs> I'm almost not sure that came out right. Pray that God will help you see people through the lens of his love. Yeah, that's better, isn't it? Don't you like that? Vision. Anybody got a pen? I can cross that out. Pray that God would help you see people. Isn't one of the greatest challenges in the world is that we are so fixed on our agenda that we miss people? It's hard up here. I know it's, you have to really hunt for people, but... But pray that God will help you, give you some insight to God's word, the world, and people around you. 
Third thing I would say, if you're still intent on loving others, get to know someone. And it takes action on your part, doesn't it? Get to know people. Get to ask somebody a question. Listen to their story. Get to know the people around you. Church is more than just coming in receiving. It reminds us to, to participate. Participate in getting to know people. Visitors that come in through the door and, uh, and, and people you've never seen before. Don't just assume everybody knows them and, the, and they just kind of fit right in. It's not always easy to be in a place where you don't know people. And um, so get to know someone around you. The fourth thing I would say, if you're intent on learning how to love others more, listen and being will, listen and be willing to offer help. Listen to what's going on. Uh, you may hear and not eavesdrop, kind of weird listening, creepy kind of stuff where people have to put like, you know, we got a restraining order because they're over there. Not that kind of stuff. But as you listen to people talk, as you interact with people and get to know people, you can hear needs without hearing needs, can't you? And so listen, be willing to help others, look for ways you can help, or ask somebody who's already serving. You can look around this church and you see someone, they, they always seem to kind of have their finger on the pulse of what's needed and go, how can I help? That's a good word. Say, say that with me. How can I help? Thank you. Ed's sermon worked well last uh, couple weeks ago. Be willing to ask how you can help and get involved. I think General Reno, it was such a, a good statement that he told the men during the men's conference, not just be willing to serve, look for ways to serve. Uh, and one of those ways is asking how you can help. I would say the fifth thing, if you're looking, how can you love others more? Seek to participate. We have to move beyond simply coming and going uh, if we're going to have a meaningful relationships with one another and be able to display something more than just cordial, how do you do? Uh, we must be willing to participate. Well, with that, let me just remind you, I was trying to look at the validity of it, and I could not help but think uh, Jerome in a commentary in Galatians speaks about the Apostle John, the end of his life. and they, It said that they carried him in to his congregation when he was unable to walk, and he would just simply tell his congregation, little children love one another, uh, at the end of his life, continually over and over. That's the very command Jesus gives us, isn't it here? He's going away. His disciples, their marching order begins first with love one another. Is there much more to do? Yeah, a lot of it flows out of that. But there's not less to do than love one another. Amen? <clears throat> with that, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can gather together. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your love for us. God, I pray that if someone here does not know you and the forgiveness of sin, they don't know the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ, that they would even now run to the cross and they would come by faith, trusting, experiencing the forgiveness of sin and, and your Holy Spirit, which, uh, Lord, we, we all need to grow in. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would continually remind us as we live this life in community, as we live this life as a church in this community, that our church would not 
just be known for what we're for, what we're against. Those things are important. But Lord, that we would be known by our love. We would be known our love for one another and our love for our community and our love for you. Lord, help us to continue to grow in that. Thank you for the, the ways in which we've seen that historically. And Lord, continue as we walk in the light to use, uh, use us to serve one another in Jesus' name. Amen.